this it's a it's emblematic of the whole thing. It's like you can do this illegal thing if you have a secret command from the, the president and his advisors, or but then other things will be written, not even written down. And what if they get caught doing whatever? If they want to do something illegal, they just have a lawyer write an opinion, and say, "Oh, it's legal." I mean, this is this is how it goes. Basically, they can do whatever they want by and large. So. And this is a good early example of this. So this is where this is the U.S. with a ostensibly still the New Deal regime in place. I mean, in 1944, when does uh, does Roosevelt die in April of 4045 or when does Roosevelt die? I'm assuming Roosevelt was still alive at this point in 1944 because he wins the 1944 election. So even when they're when he's in charge, they're making all these plans. This is just like how when he's in charge. The Council on Foreign Relations is formulating a, a pretty imperialistic plan for the for the U.S. post-war plans. I don't know how much Roosevelt ever had to do with that. It didn't seem like it was really in line with what he and Henry Wallace wanted. But, you know, how much could he really micromanage these things? It'd be interesting to know what his plans were. But the result is, you know, you get the American century, Henry Luce, this great, this empire that doesn't call itself an empire. And to make sure that pe that people don't vote the wrong way, you have uh, these stay behind armies. Well, the stay behind armies are supposed to protect against a potential invasion. So if the Soviets were to invade, then you'd have these stay behinds ready, and they'd be able to fight and resist communist aggression. Uh, but in reality, the Soviets aren't itching for a fight because they just lost 27 million people, and the Americans have the bomb, and they've already shown that they'll nuke a defenseless city if it comes down to it. And in fact, in 1946, they tell the Soviets they're going to nuke them if they don't get out of Iran, uh, which is not a state in the United States, if you didn't know that. Um, and, and this is so right away, this is the Soviets are like, OK, these, the alliance has been destroyed. And the U.S. was largely responsible for this. Many the, the revisionist historians of the U.S., people who are at all critical of U.S. empire, uh, understand that the U.S. was responsible for the Cold War. The Soviets didn't want the Cold War. Um, so Angleton, he rescues Borghese and Borghese and he puts him in the uniform of a U.S. officer so he can escape uh, and, and undetected. And he goes to Rome and he stands trial for war crimes uh, because that he's too big of a guy to just let off. Uh, but due to the intervention of the United States, he's declared not guilty. But he really was guilty of many things. And they just said, well, OK, not guilty. So this is, again, top down power. Not guilty. Um, a CIA agent, Angleton, well, he would have been OSS at this time, but he received the Legion of Merit from the U.S. Army for his exceptionally meritorious achievements and, of course, went on to become the counterintelligence chief of the CIA. And the main American uh, controlling all of the right-winger, neo-fascist, neo-Nazi uh, paramilitary types in Italy in the post-war period. Um so he says, this is pretty typical of the mentality of these guys. After the defeat of Mussolini and Hitler, his biographer wrote about him, now the hammer and sickle replaced the crooked cross, uh, the swastika. So these things are set up. And in the, in the U.S., in years after this, 1947, which we've talked about, the National Security Act creates the NSC and the CIA, 19, and the OPC under Frank Wisner sets up stay-behind armies. So the OPC is like the covert operations arm of the CIA, but it's not well-known outside of the government what it really does or is. It sounds boring, Office of Policy Coordination. It's supposed to be 
controlled by it's supposed to be under like sort of controlled by the CIA, but also the State Department, like officially under the State Department. But the State Department never had anything to do with it. And even the rest of the CIA didn't really know what they were doing most of the time. They got into all kinds of shenanigans. But this was the early freewheeling CIA. So this is they, they set these things up in different countries. Like in Finland, they were trying to early set up stay behind networks. Uh, and a communist interior minister, because Finland has a, you know, pretty, they were neutral and they had a mixed government coalition government of sorts. Communist interior minister exposed a secret stay behind, which was closed down. Uh, but in France, in, in France, there's also some resistance to this. 1947, the interior minister reveals a secret stay behind army codenamed Plan Bleu, um, which they are, which was a bit of a scandal at the time. Uh, in Austria, a stay behind is exposed, which was set up by these two right wing extremist fellows and the chancellor uh, pardons them because uh, they're accused of a lot of war crimes under very mysterious circumstances. They're pardoned. Presumably they go on to fight more there. In France, there's a Western Union clandestine committee. 1948, it's established to coordinate secret unorthodox warfare uh, after NATO's created a year later. They are integrated into this military alliance under the same clandestine planning committee or CPC. So they set up all of these different nebulous and opaque outfits to run these. Um, in 1949, NATO is founded. And this is 1949 is like a year of great uh, paranoia for the U.S. because the econ there's problems with the economy. The, the shift to a, a peacetime economy is a problem in the U.S., and initially, the Soviets detonate a nuclear bomb. Additionally, you have the communist revolution uh, in China. And so this is a time of, of paranoia. They set up NATO, and this is the first peacetime alliance ever. This is where you get into um, where Gladio becomes more of an issue because it's NATO's secret armies. The best book on this is Daniel Ganser's NATO's Secret Armies. And uh, he has great details in this. I recommend that over the Paul Williams book, which I haven't read, but I'm sure it has some interesting material in it. But he's really got sketchy politics. He seems to be a right winger, almost like a bircher or something like that. Like he's one of those guys who's obsessed with Catholics and uh, and so on. I don't, do, you, do you know anything about that guy? I do not. I just I yeah, I've uh, heard the same thing about him. He came up a while back, I think, on Twitter where people were roughly saying the same thing, especially the yeah. anti-Catholicism, which while I can support as a lapsed Catholic, he's into it for the wrong reasons. Right. Yeah. He's like, I'm convinced not... that, uh, Francis, he's like, Francis is the CIA's pope and all this stuff and and just spends an inordinate amount of time worried about the Catholics, which as we'll get to, you know, like secret organizations like Opus Dei, of course, like there's reason to be concerned about them, but maybe not for <laughs> not for the reasons that, that he lands on. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what to do with these kind of where it's, it's not like I want to be a cheerleader for like the Vatican or for like Mossad. But when people are too fixated on them, then it, it raises some red flags with me. Absolutely. But I'm not, a, again, not a fan of either of them. It is true, however, that the Vatican is a very useful way to launder money. And, and you know, the Vatican's banks have a certain amount of, uh, like, lack of transparency that national banks don't have. Uh, so, you know, as, as we might touch on a little bit, I think he does a good job kind of documenting the way that 
uh, a lot of these Gladio funds are able to be run through the Vatican because they're just sitting on such an insane amount of assets. But, um, you know, a lot of it gets kind of squandered away by the amount of laundering and sort of fraud and embezzlement that happens under the mob and under the Vatican connection to this sort of NATO network. Yeah, the, the, the Catholic Church does end up being involved in, I mean, they're kind of like, they're sort of like Mossad. They're kind of a satellite of of Western imperialism and Western capitalism. And of course, this goes back long, long time ago. Obviously, the Catholic Church was there previously legitimating the previous political economic regime that known as feudalism for quite a long time. Uh, or the Roman Empire. I mean, this is what this is the role of religion in a way is to sort of sanctify the prevailing hierarchies. And so I think that that's worth thinking of with the Catholic Church. And in this era, uh, they are the, the the book Gold Warriors details the recovery of post-war loot in Asia. And one of the main characters that, that they didn't they didn't recognize at the time exactly what his role was because he's very mysterious is a guy they call Santa Anna. And there was this court case of uh, involving his his widow who wanted access to the, to these bank accounts that he had set up himself. So he's this this guy working for somebody with enormous amounts, I mean, massive amounts of gold bullion and other funds that he can uh, move around. And it's very sp spooky on the surface of, I mean, spooky, like seems to be related to clandestine activity. They find out later that he is an agent of the Vatican. Um, and that's that to me does not say aha. It's, the Pope really is ruling it, running everything. It's all a papal <laughs> conspiracy. It just shows you that like this is um, a part of the the constellation of uh, clandestine activity that they will use the Catholic Church. They'll use any 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 sort of thing. But even to your point with that, I mean, if you look at the post World War II, the way they, the way. Um, during World War II and after how the OSS and then the CIA interacted with the Vatican, the Vatican had its own intelligence arm, Prodeo, whose leader, Father Felix Morlian, had a connection to Wild Bill Donovan. So he was acting almost as a double agent within the Vatican, reporting to Donovan and then reporting back to the Vatican. And they used Prodeo, for example, in Latin and South America to help promote capitalism and to fight communism. So... Um, the Vatican, in many ways, has always been a vehicle, at least since the end of World War II, for promoting American hegemony. That was just an excerpt from the American Exception podcast. To hear the whole episode, as well as archived and new episodes, please subscribe to the American Exception podcast at Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash American Exception. Subscribe and you can join us as we illuminate the dark side of the U.S. Empire. Thank you.